0: Celebration Rock Critical Conversations About Music Presented by 93X and Uproxx.com
1: This is the Celebration Rock podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host Stephen Hayden. You just heard our new theme song. It's our first ever theme song. We've had music play at the top of episodes in the past. Uh usually it was music by the artist that we were talking about in that in that episode, but uh we stopped doing that because we were afraid Of getting sued so we haven't had any music at the top of the episode uh, for a while now and it's always been awkward because this is a music podcast and yet there was not any music at all in our uh, in our episodes so um, recently I I went on Twitter and I solicited people to send me music uh, that we could play at the top of the episode so you know a celebration rock theme song and uh, we got a bunch of really great submissions. What you just heard is by a guy named Josh. He's one of our listeners. He goes under the moniker Thrill Me Music. He wrote that piece, and uh, I really like it. So we're going to stick with it at least through the end of this season. Uh, we're going to be doing episodes uh, up until about uh, Christmas time or so, and then we're going to take a couple months off, and then we'll be back in 2018. So I think we're going to use that until then. Like Derek, you like that? I do like it. It's really good. We got some really good submissions for this. So, it was thank between you. Between that guys one yeah. and another one, and you kind of like the other one a little bit more. Oh, man, you're just putting me on blast right now. <laughs> I like the other one too. There <laughs> they were, were both two good. that were very close. <laughs> but we're going to go with this one. Uh, so, hopefully, uh, you guys like it. Tell me what you think of it. Go on uh, Twitter. We're at Cellar Rock Pod. Let me know if you like the theme song, and uh, we'll see if we stick with it. But I like it for now. I think it's cool. So, This week's episode, we're going to be doing something really interesting and fun, and I think maybe even important. Uh, It's an episode on the Tragically Hip, a band that is iconic in Canada. You cannot get any more sort of legendary north of the border, but here in America, largely unknown. You know, recently people... Uh, here in the States, started hearing about the Tragically Hip uh, for a very sad reason. The the band's lead singer, Gord Downey, passed away in October after uh, a battle with brain cancer. He died at the age of 53. So there were tributes in Rolling Stone and, and Vulture and a couple of other places. And I know for me as a person who was vaguely aware of the Tragically Hip, you know, I grew up in America. I'm an American, of course. Uh, I was vaguely aware of the Tragically Hip, but I never really listened to them. And then when Gord Downie died, I decided to start checking out the catalog. And I actually got into a, a lot of their records. So I thought it would be good to do an episode. I, you know, I also had a lot of our Canadian listeners on this podcast You know, reach out to me on Twitter and say, you know, it'd be great if you did a Tragically Hip episode. And, you know, at first I was a little reluctant because, like I said, I was listening to the band, but I wasn't a super fan. I, I wasn't that knowledgeable. I didn't know if I was the appropriate person to do this thing. But people kept asking me to do it. And finally I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to call up this guy I know, Stuart Berman. He's a writer for Pitchfork. And uh, he wrote actually, you know, very conveniently, conveniently for me, he wrote a story right after Gord Downey died called An American's Guide to the Tragically Hip. He made a playlist of songs designed to introduce people like me to the band. So I thought he would be a good person to talk to about the Tragically Hip, why they're so important in Canada. And also to talk about this sort of weird mystery zone that exists between American and Canadian culture. You know, our countries are so close together in many ways. And you know, when you go to Canada, it seems like you're in America in many respects. But then there's always these little cultural differences that pop up that underscore this the separation between the countries. And I think the Tragically Hip, at least in terms of rock bands, is like a the major example of that. So I wanted to get his take on that. So it was a great conversation that I had with Stuart. And I think that if you're curious about the Tragically Hip, this will be a good introduction for you. And I think you know they really are a great band. I think Americans really missed the boat with this band. you know we screwed up this this should have been a band that we loved and that we embraced a long time ago. I feel sad that I didn't start listening to them until Gord Downey died, but uh you know, what better way to honor this great songwriter than to listen to his music now and keep his memory alive so with that in mind, uh, here's my conversation with Stuart Berman about the tragically hit <laughs> so Stuart you know I and thank you for coming on the podcast by the way. It's nice to my talk pleasure. to you. Thanks. And uh, you were just saying that you are in Hamilton, which is the uh, Hoboken of, of Toronto.
0: <laughs> well, you know, there's been a lot of hype pieces in the local media calling it like the Williams- new Williamsburg, but it's actually about 40 minutes outside Toronto, so it's it's not as simple as crossing a bridge. Okay, you got to make a commitment to uh, to come over here.
1: Like, are there any Drake songs about Hamilton?
0: Not yet. I mean, Hamilton's history is more in the sort of proto-punk uh, milieu, um, you know, Simply Saucer and Teenage Head are kind of the, the legendary proto-punk bands that come out of here. But lately it's been, the narrative's kind of shifted more to like the Junior Boys and Caribou okay. came from this area. So it's sort of developing a reputation more for it's like... Avant-garde
1: electronic. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm just trying to give our listeners like a lay of the land in Canada, like the cultural landscape. I feel like this is a very educational episode in that regard. Yeah. Um, So I just want to set the, uh, I guess set the picture here uh, for my listeners here about just how ingrained the Tragically Hip is in the culture of Canada. You know, Gord Downey, he passes away in October and the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau makes a statement choking back tears and he says, you know, we are less of a country without Gord Downey in it. You know, there's, there's a, there's a member of Canadian parliament who calls for a state funeral to be held for Gord Downey. Um, there's a moment of silence in the house of Commons. Uh, there's candlelight vigils, uh, in various towns throughout, uh, throughout Canada. I mean, I, I was trying to think of an equivalent in America, like who you know, who would have that kind of impact if they passed away tomorrow? And like I mean the best I can do is Bruce Springsteen or someone of that stature. I mean, is that a fair comparison to make?
0: I think so, both in the sense of, you know, their popularity, um, the style of rock music they they sort of traffic in, and also the fact that like, you know, Springsteen is someone who's seen as like the soul of America. Um and very much Downey was very Seen as you know inhabiting the same space, like he wasn't just the singer of a popular rock band. He you know he spoke to the soul of the nation, and you know he wrote a lot of songs that told Canadian stories, which you didn't often hear. You know, even someone like Neil Young, who can sing, you know, there was a town in North Ontario, uh, or there is a town in North Ontario. I'm sorry, um, you know, he could have easily just said, "There's a town in North Idaho," like you know, wasn't necessarily like. <laughs> integral to the song um, Helpless, per se. But Gord actually told deep stories about Canadian history, like really obscure, arcane stories that the average Canadian wouldn't be aware of. So, you know, there was... You know, and that was something that was really novel coming from a a Canadian artist.
1: Yeah, and And, getting back to the Neil Young example, I mean, you know, I think when I first listened to Neil Young, I didn't necessarily... I don't know if I knew that he was from Canada, because, like... You know, like California is a big part of his music as well, and that's also true of Joni Mitchell. I mean, like yeah. you, there is a, they're as associated, if not more so, with sort of like '70s California folk pop music as they are with sort of a a, a Canadian national identity. Um, yeah. It's not. I as mean, yeah,
0: Neil's lived in the states since I think the LBJ presidency. Pretty much. <laughs> right. You know, he, I know he maintains, uh, I think, a residence or two up here, and he, you know, he 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 dips back here and he he gets involved with you know, some of the sort of political affairs up here from time to time. But but yeah, you're right. He, he does belong to America as much as Canada likes to, to claim him.
1: And, and, like, you know, and just going back to the Springsteen comparison, I mean, the, where that comparison, I think, starts to break down a bit is that Springsteen is also an international star, that he yeah. does matter in other parts of the world, really, I think, in every country probably at this point, um, whereas the Tragically Hip is so specifically... Canadian. I mean, I was just thinking about the band name, Tragically Hip, which seems so Canadian in and of itself. It's, it's sort of like a, a, self-deprecating, name, you know, uh, sort of like a like, like yeah, we're hip, but like not really type thing. It's, it's sort of it, it, you know, ingrained in the band almost, um, which 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 seems like sort of a can, like part of the Canadian character, maybe in a way.
0: It's interesting. Like I went back and listened to their first EP, which came out in 1987, and even if you like look at the artwork for that, like the font. Choice is very similar to like what you'd find on like a replacements record um and you know listening to that e p it's very much sort of influenced by r e m and kind of the 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 more popular college rock of the day, which is very different than what the tragedy had turned into by their next record up to here they were doing kind of a more tougher blues rock thing, which got them sort of tagged as like Canada's biggest bar band. Um, But there was always this tension in the band where, you know, the music itself was pretty straight ahead, meat and potatoes, rock. But in Gord Downey, you had this real weirdo (laughs) at the front of the band who wasn't just like singing the songs, but like inhabiting them and like acting them out. And he was a real sort of live wire presence on stage. And, you know, I I, I would often compare them to like, you know, imagine if Crazy Horse was fronted by like, an even weirder Michael Stipe, <laughs> right? In a way, so you have like that tension between the sort of straight-ahead rock and then the more weird, poetic, eccentric lyricist at the front. And you know, Gord was like a quintessential Canadian rock star, which is to say that he didn't really <laughs> ever seem totally comfortable in that role. You, you know, Canada doesn't really produce like David Bowie and Mick Jagger. Like we produce people like Neil Young and Leonard Cohen and. You know, people always have like a bit of a you know, apprehensive relationship with stardom and are always kind of like tiptoeing around the spotlight without wanting to dive completely in. So, you know, Gord was definitely cut from that mold.
1: You know, I I want to dig into the music here in a moment, but you know, but before we get to that, I I am very intrigued by this I guess mystery zone between American and Canadian culture because, you know, I I feel like America, I feel like there's, like, we're mostly on the same page. Like, whenever I go to Canada, I feel like it's an extension of a, of America, which might be a very boorish American thing to say. I, and I don't know, like, when you, if it's the other way for you, like, we, if you see America being dramatically different from Canada. But, um, you know, the fact that the Tragically Hip is so big there, and so iconic, and the fact that, you know, they were on postage st- stamps <laughs> you know, like that they were that you know that that big in the country and yet here in america virtually no knowledge of them at all i know like for me yeah. before um tragically hip started getting more media attention down here after Gord Downey was diagnosed with cancer and and then of course he passed away last month um the only exposure i had to them was when they were on saturday night live in right. 1995 and i remember watching that and being very confused by like like who is this band? Um and you talked about Gord Downey being this sort of you know weird, spastic frontman. And I, I I actually watched that performance. They play this song Grace Two. And I think they also play Nautical Disaster. I think that's the second song they play. Two songs from Day yeah. for Night, which is now my favorite tragically hip record. Um but uh you know this was definitely at their peak in a way, you know, they were in the midst of this kind of great run of albums that I think you know, and we'll get into that later, but it seems like sort of their classic period, you know, it was in the nineties and that's when they were on SNL. Um, But, you know, I mean, I think at the time, they just seemed like sort of like this generic alt rock band to me. Like, like, who are these guys? Um, I mean, there's
0: been a lot of, sorry.
1: And so, yeah, it, it was very odd. And then after that, there was nothing, you know, it was almost like, you know, Dan Aykroyd, got them on as a personal favor or something, and then there was nothing after that, and it was sort of like, oh, that was weird that they were on the show, and then you never hear from them ever again here in America.
0: Well, there was, there was you know, a push for them for a bit because, you know, they were coming off a string of really successful albums in Canada, um, Road Apple's Fully Completely and then Day for Night, so, like, they were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in Canada, and everyone was like, all right, let's do this, let's hit America, it's time. And they signed to Atlantic Records, and so they were getting a push, and, you know, that was the Ackroyd, uh you know, favor <laughs> was part of that. And, you know, a lot of people floated the theory that, oh, the reason it didn't connect is, like, the songs were too Canadian. And I kind of compare that to, like, why didn't, you know, the streets become huge in America? Oh, it's because Mike Skidder speaks in, you know, too thick of a British accent and uses weird slang, you know? So... You know people thought that just the inherent Canadianness of the lyrics was was off putting but I think if you step back and look at like what was happening in rock and roll back then, yeah, definitely grunge was huge, but you also had like a lot of like post Black crow's blues rock that was popular and stuff like Lenny Kravitz. so there was like a kind of retro blues rock thing going on and the hip kind of like fit in between those two poles like they weren't quite you know loud and edgy enough to sort of be considered alt rock. But they were kind of a little too weird and cerebral to be just a straight retro blues rock band. So I feel like that you know, didn't work to their advantage. Um, Finally, enough a few years after that, and like first time I went down to CMJ ever, I met a guy who worked at Atlantic Records at the time, and you know he was telling me <laughs> that you know oh yeah the tragically hip uh, yeah you know anytime we had a band on SNL you would see like a sales spike Monday morning the hip nothing <laughs> just. <laughs> did not do anything for them. So might, might. I feel like that was sort of a turning point for them. Like after that, the whole, like, let's make it an America narrative kind of, you know, fell by the wayside and they just sort of embraced being Canada's band. And, you know, there always seemed to be like an asterisk name next to like the traffic hip name because they couldn't quite break it into the U S. But, over time, I've come to appreciate the fact that, like, you know, as a result, you know, we kind of have more of a definition of what the Canadian identity is. You know? Like, there is something different between Canada and the U.S., and, like, the hip kind of crystallized that. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but, you know, they're proof that there is, like, a fundamental difference between American and Canadian sensibilities.
1: Well, and I mean, and I want to get to that. I mean, you know, when we were talking about, like, why the tragically hip didn't make it in America, my theory on this was is that there really wasn't a slot for them at that time you know cuz like you know i've become i've been listening to tragically hip a lot in the last month okay and i've been buying tragically hip albums and so i've I, i've kind of gone through like a crash course on the tragically hip and i've become a pretty big fan of of uh, especially their 90s work and i have to say that like what draws me to them now is that uh, they sort of sound like 90s the band to me. Like, right. They sound like yeah. an amalgam of 90s rock, uh, a lot of the different styles but they're a band that I haven't heard yet you know So right. you know as a person who loves 90s rock who you know like I love Pearl Jam and I love REM and um, you know I like the counting crows and all that kind of stuff. but I've heard all those records before. but here's a band that does that kind of music where it's this anthemic, rootsy rock sound with an eccentric lead singer who writes poetic lyrics at the top. You know, that was a formula that was pretty common in the nineties. And I think, you know, again, as an American watching the tragically hip in 1995, you know, my reference points were American bands. So it was, you know, I was the kind of person who would look at them and say like, well, this, they kind of sound like Pearl Jam with Michael Stipe at the front and I probably would have even compared them to like a band like live or something. Like I loved live in 1995. Okay. Um, no, I can definitely see that. Connection. So, and I think for Americans, it would have been like, well, we already have bands like this. So like, why do we need another version of it? Um, but, which by the way, I think that's wrong, by the way, uh, that's, that, that, that was a wrong conclusion to make. And I think maybe if there would, there would have been more prolonged exposure, um, people would have come around, you know, like I was, um, on YouTube recently, and funny enough, um, there's an interview on there with Getty Lee from Rush who's talking about the Tragically Hip. And I actually thought that he had one of the best comments about the Tragically Hip's music, where he, he, he had this thing where he said that when you listen to their songs, they sound really simple and straight ahead on first listen. And it can be easy to dismiss them out of hand. But if you listen to it a bunch... There's, there's these sort of weird eccentricities that come out. There's complexities. I think the, the, the lyricism of Downey starts to come more to the fore. And uh, the songs actually age really well if you've listened to them 10, 15 times. Um, I actually thought that was a really astute comment. I think that's been true for me because when I first listened to them, I thought it was okay. And then, like, by the 10th time, like, listening to Day for Night, I was like, oh, this record's amazing. I love this record. Yeah,
0: I mean, is that been true for you, would you say? Band, like you said, like they, you know, they remind you of a lot of different things all at once. But when you hear a tragically hip song, you know it. It is definitely a tragically hip song. It's, not, it's and and a lot of that is through Gord. Like he, you know, he sings about things and sings about them in a way that you know no one else was doing at that time. You know, I I had a similar experience in the sense like growing up in Canada. They they were so ubiquitous, and they became so associated with like this sort of stereotypical hoser, hockey, loving Canadian jock (laughs) caricature. You know, uh, if you're familiar with the Canadian band Sloan, and their song Coax Me, they have a a classic line that says, it's not the band I hate, it's their fans. And that was sort of my relationship with the hip for a good chunk of the 90s because, you know, I was trying to get into, like, Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. And, you know, those were the cool bands. And the hip seemed like, you know like really traditional and straightforward in comparison. But over time, yeah, when you sort of look back, you realize, oh no, they they were a pretty weird band to be so popular. And, you know, one of their biggest hits in Canada is called Locked in the Trunk of a Car. It's just like a crazy intense <laughs> song, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I feel like after that 1995 turning point, they became a little more looser and a little more experimental and certainly Gord kind of stepped out of sort of this like rock icon role and became more of like, um, like a father figure to like the Canadian indie rock scene that was sort of mobilizing at that time. Um, you know, the tragic hip always had a good reputation for bringing, you know, cool indie bands on tour with them. And it was sort of a rite of passage for, you know, the hot local Toronto band <laughs> to get the opening slot on the hip tour and then get like pelted <laughs> with garbage and expletives <laughs> as they open the tour. It's kind of like the ultimate test as a band. Like, can you survive a, a tour opening for the Tragically Hip? Um, but, you know, Gord, you know, from the late nineties on really started interacting with, you know, the, the indie rock community up here and he started putting out his own solo records, which were very different from the hip, and started you know just immersing himself in that world you know around 2001 I, I, when his first solo record came in he did the sort of local album release as part of this like experimental free jazz festival <laughs> in toronto because a lot of the players he used on his record kind of had ties to that scene so i just remember standing in this like small venue it's actually in uh, a brewery here in toronto and just realizing like, wow, I'm watching like the lead singer of the biggest band in Canada playing this weird ass music, you know, and, you know, most of his fans probably don't even know he's doing this right now. Right. Yeah. So he always had like a real curiosity about him. Like he carried himself very humbly, always wanted to learn from, you know, younger musicians. And, you know, I feel like that's, you know. That sustained them creatively, even if like the hip were, you know, the hip were the kind of band, they're kind of like where Pearl Jam are now. Like they can still sell out, they could still sell out arenas from like, you know, till the end of time, even if their albums started kind of debuting a bit lower on the album charts each each, with each passing year.
1: Right, right. You know, you mentioned earlier about how for a while that there was an asterisk next to the Tragically Hip because they were so huge in Canada and yet they couldn't break through in America do you think ultimately they would matter as much in canada if they had made it in america like the fact that, that they didn't make it do you think that makes them more special up there
0: it's sort of two side coin you know canadians are still very obsessed with you know <laughs> american <laughs> success um you know it, it does feel it still is sort of a validation that you know, is only bestowed on a precious few. But there is, you know, I'd say in the last 20 years, there's been much more of an appreciation appreciation for Canadian music that's just great and doesn't matter if the rest of the world is tuning in. You know, now we have sort of mechanisms like the Polaris Music Prize and, you know, local indie alternative stations that didn't exist 15 years ago that promote local and Canadian bands. And, you know, some of those bands never crossover to the U S but they still you know, kind of develop a sustainable career just being based out of Canada. Cause for a long time in the early nineties, like a, a lot of bands had to like, leave, like, like, you know, the famous story is peaches had to move to Berlin to sort of make it big. Cause she wasn't getting any love locally. And there was no like hope for pre internet. There was little hope of sustaining a career if you stayed in Canada, but now, you know, Ironically, because the internet has sort of opened the boundaries a lot, you know, bands can stay in Canada more, yet still, you know, have a sustain- long, sustainable career. I, w- I
1: mean, I, I've always loved uh, Canadian bands. I always feel like there's, like, a... Uh I guess, an unabashed love of, like, rock and roll in Canada that yeah. isn't always true in America. I feel like in America there's a deep confusion about what rock and roll even is, or or it's so <laughs> fragmented. But, like, you, know, you mentioned Sloan before. Like, Sloan is a band that I've always loved, and they were always one of those bands that, like, uh, it was like, why aren't these guys bigger in America? And it's because in America it seems very sort of niche-oriented and very scene-oriented, and if you're not associated with, like, some sort of fashionable like narrative hook or like, uh, or group of other bands, it can be difficult to break through. Um, I mean, I always loved like Sam Roberts, you know, who was a huge <laughs> yeah. arena draw in the 2000s. I don't know if he still is in Canada, but like uh, like Chemical City and We Were Born in a Flame, like those records. Um, I loved those records when they came out, but he was another guy that was, you know, kind of cut from a very straightforward kind of heartland rock almost mold. Which there's no audience for here in America unless you're going to rebrand yourself as a country singer. I mean that that's what Heartland Rock is here in America now. Yeah. Um, it seems like Canada has always had bands like that that are not that are sort of like trend averse, you know, or or they don't care about fashion as
0: much. Um, yeah, up there's there, always maybe. you know in Toronto particularly like there's always like. Uh, an alt country scene that just like survives <laughs> throughout the decades um, I think it might be because you know the few Canadian acts that did cross over in the 60s were all of that sort of folk rock ilk so it's like you're Neil Young Joni Mitchell um, you know Gordon Lightfoot so you know that's who the country rallied around back in the day and you know that's just sort of in the kind of the totems that <laughs> everyone still bows before i mean it's funny because you know now when people talk about toronto they instantly talk about drake and you know finally like canadian hip-hop and r&b is becoming a global phenomenon and and you know the industry has always lagged behind trends here so you know you know toronto's always had great hip-hop it's just only been recently that you know the stars of the line didn't you know, the artist could break through. But, um, but yeah, I guess, you know, there is sort of still this romance to the, the Canadian landscapes that inspires sort of rootsy, rootsy rock and roll.
1: Yeah, and, and there definitely was, you know, starting in the 2000s, this wave of indie rock bands from Canada that ended up breaking yeah. through. And, of course, Arcade Fire is the biggest example of that, although... You know, Win Butler's from Texas, so yeah. so he's sort of Canadian, but like also American. Um, I, I've been talk- I've been listening to the Constantines uh, yeah. lately, who I loved back then, and I hadn't listened to in a while. Um, you know, who were sort of biggish at that time.
0: If you ever um, want to do an episode on the Constantines? Give me a <laughs> Oh,
1: we'll see. I'd love to do that. Um, well, let's dig into the Tragically Hip's uh, discography sure. here. I mean, from what I can tell. I mean, you can kind of split up their early periods. You you alluded to this before about how when they got started, they were sort of grouped in this, I guess, Rolling Stones, bluesy rock, maybe kind of Black Crows-ish a a little bit uh, era, like on their first couple records. Uh, Although I feel like by Road Apples, which is that 91 record, they were starting to back away from that already.
0: Yeah. I well that's because like I was saying earlier, like their very first EP from eighty seven is actually like kind of yeah, like a weird holdover of American college rock. Like there's even some stuff on there that sounds a bit like like the B fifty twos. It's kind of this you know, very much time capsule of that that era. But it was up to here, which was like their really big breakout record in Canada that was sort of grittier and bluesier and that kind of you know, that's where I think the reputation sort of developed that they were this like Band for beer drinking hockey fans. Like New Orleans <laughs> like, is
1: sinking is the was a big yeah, rock song off there. Well, at
0: high dough, but it also had like thirty eight years old, which is I think like his first great ballad, and you know it's one of those songs, early songs that showed you you know he was a really distinct voice, and I think Road Apples was a key record because it it kept the sort of grittiness, but it didn't it wasn't so beholden to like the blues rock sort of conventions. It, it was really them developing their own, their own sound and their own sensibility. And that sort of, you know, through Fully Completely and Day for Night kind of, you know, kept, you know it was all building from that foundation. And, you know, I would say that's their uh, you know, imperial phase.
1: As yeah, as I mean, well, where, I mean do you, would you say that like sort of the, the prime era begins with Fully Completely or do you go before that?
0: I'd say Rhode Apples is the real...
1: Because yeah, I think I mean, because I, I like Road Apples to me fully completely which is a record they put out in 1992 and yeah. it was a huge success in Canada, um, I mean to me that sounds like their first really great record. Road Apple yeah, seems like I it's setting the stage that, yeah. for that.
0: You know if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna do like the. Beatles analogy, you could say Road Apples is like the rubber soul <laughs> the big step forward and then fully completely is like the revolver that builds on top of that and maybe I don't know if Day for Night is their Sergeant Pepper per se. Well, like,
1: I mean, when I listen to those that, records...
0: It is, for me, it's that is kind of their, the peak of their power.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I'll defer to you as the Canadian in our conversation, but right. like when I listen to those records, I actually, in my mind, I kind of think of fully completely as their verses and right, yeah. uh, Day for Night is their Vitology. Yeah, because
0: yeah that's, that's, that's maybe more appropriate. Because,
1: you know, when well you can hear like with um, those early Tragically Hip records, um, you know, the songs are really good, but it's a pretty, the, the production is pretty slick. Um, you know, it, 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 it's like pretty pop-rocky. I, I would say maybe if people are digging into those records, the production might be somewhat of a problem, although I think... Um, when you get into Road Apples and and fully completely, I mean, the, I mean, those records still sound good. But like, but then you get to Day for Night, which to me just sounds like a more sort of muscular live sounding
0: yeah, record. And like, and emotionally, like it's like got some of his chords like heaviest songs like Nautical Disaster, it's probably my favorite hit song of all time. You yeah. know, and that was the song you know, in the height of my own kind of like alt rock snobbery that made me kind of stop me in my tracks and go like, well, that's that's a really amazing song.
1: And Japan Droids recently covered that song in the wake of yeah, Lord Downey's death. Yeah, the
0: Massey Hall show. Yeah, they uh, did it, note for note. And they nailed it.
1: Um, I, I really love the song Grace 2 on, on yeah. Day for Night. And, and by the way, like, Tragically Hip, great uh, side one track ones on their records. <laughs> I think they always have yeah. really great songs. Like on Road Apples, that song, um, what's that song called? Uh, Little, Little Bones. Bones.
0: Yeah, that, that's, an, that's an amazing song.
1: That's a great song. And then on the first song on Fully Completely is Courage which is a great song. Um, And then you you get up to like Phantom Power and you have that song like Poets and that's a great song. Um, And, uh, you know, you you talked about like how some of their later records, like, you know, at some point there's sort of uh, diminishing returns and maybe records aren't as popular. Like what would you say marks the end of their glory period?
0: Uh, I would say like Phantom Power is probably their last like front to back Excellent record, um, yeah. What I liked about Sir sort of Phantom Powers, they they got a little more looser and a little more playful. Um, you know, like the song "Fireworks," which I think is one of their their best songs. It's it's a song about that's set during the famous Canada Russia World Cup game at uh, hockey game, which um, you know the famous famous goal Canada won. But it's it's a tale of a guy trying to you know get with a girl who doesn't care about hockey. So he misses the most historic goal <laughs> in Canadian history because he's smitten with a girl who doesn't like hockey. You know, so, and, and I think that song kind of introduced more of like a, almost like a power pop sensibility into their sound, which wasn't necessarily there before. They kind of used to always deal with pretty heavy, muscular kind of rockers and fireworks just kind of sounds like they're you know bashing it out on the floor kind of deal. Um, and that's also the song that, or Phantom Power is also the album that includes Bob Cajun, which is one of their you know, most beloved ballads up here, which is named after a small town.
1: Yeah, and, in, and talk about that song because it's because it, I mean to me, like you mentioned, this song thirty eight years old off of yeah. uh, off the first full length record, which is a song about basically like a a lonely guy. He's a virgin, and he is sort of like this misfit type character.
0: Well, it's based on it's it's a. I believe it's a fictionalized account of an actual prison break in the band's hometown of uh, Kingston, Ontario, which is, you know, most famous for having one of Canada's <laughs> toughest maximum security prisons. So that's his own sort of using that as the backdrop for this story about, you know, a man who's been in jail and, you know, missed out on the, you know, the fundamental turning points. That most people get to experience. So it, it was just an interesting in that you know he takes a very sympath- paints a very sympathetic portrait of like a criminal, and that was as I mentioned earlier that was one of the first songs where it, it really struck you that this guy had you know a, a pretty unique lyrical sensibility. Um, and then funny like Bob Cajun, which is, comes about ten years later, um, again you know one of their most beloved ballads, you know. It's funny how that kind of fits into the tragically up stereotype of you know you know telling Canadian stories and being really rich in Canadiana. But Gordon admitted that he used that town name just so because it rhymed with constellation. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily about the town itself, uh, which is located about like two hours north of Toronto. Um, it's just that it was it was a convenient word for him to use. <laughs>
1: And and it isn't about like, it's like about a cop, right? Who like goes, he like, he leaves like home every weekend and he goes up north and... Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a a simple love song, but you know, just... But isn't it insinuated that he's gay
1: in the song? Like I read that online somewhere that like someone was speculating that the character is gay in that song. Like he's a gay police officer or something? I'd
0: say, uh, or do you still like to introduce it as saying like the song is about a couple of gay cops In love, (laughs) or something of that effect. And that's the thing; like his songs, could be like very specific, but there's also an ambiguity to them that, you know, I think he likes to keep certain things to himself. And so, uh, yeah, you know, you can interpret his songs in a a lot of different ways.
1: What album from this run in the '90s would be your personal favorite?
0: My personal, like fully, completely is. And it's, it's a tough for me between fully completely and day for night. Like, I feel like that was just like a band firing on all full cylinders and, you know, getting, you can just hear the confidence of as, as them growing and, and their, you know, and their vision expanding. Um, you know, I think of like a song like Fully Complete, like the title track itself, which is almost got kind of like a, you know, new wavy, post punky kind of feel to it, which is like, which wasn't something you expected from them at that point where they were you know, becoming Canada's, you know, you know, classic rock band. Um, and then, you know, Day for Night, Day for Night just has, like, I feel like a real, like, expansive atmosphere to it that sort of, you know, it's it's just a very vivid record for me. Like It's, it's something you sort of slip
1: inside of. Yeah, and, like, you know, we were talking a lot about Gord Downie, but I feel like on Day for Night, what sells that for me... I, I mean I love fully completely too. I think that's a really good record. But like day for night to me, like the guitar solos and the guitar interplay gets a little wilder and a little more yeah. raw. It sounds like more of a live record to me. I don't know like uh, if it, if they recorded a lot of those tracks live or, or if it you know they just did. If it was the production choices that they made, but um, just the good was that like Rob Baker and Paul Langlois. Is that the dude's name? Yeah, those are the, the.
0: How the about that? Records.
1: See, I've been doing my homework right. on hip. <laughs> How many Ameri- it's how it's many it's Americans it's can name both guitar players in the Tragically <laughs> Hip? I think I should get some sort of Canadian award for that. Um, um can you name the drummer? Uh no. No, I don't. no. See I'm not that Johnny good. Johnny Fay. Okay.
0: <laughs> but yeah, Grace Two is like a, a really great example of that where it has like a kind of a slow burn intro and then you realize like it's all of a sudden like it's just this raging tsunami of guitars, and it's just like, How did that happen? Like when did that happen exactly? Like it, it that song really feels like, you know, Sort of being caught in like a whirlpool of of, of guitars I and mean, like it's but it's so subtle it doesn't it doesn't like hit you over the head right and it doesn't it's not like glory ever gets obscured by the noise it's just they're they had a very you know for for a band people like to you know characterize as a as a bar band you know they had a very artful way of of doing things. And yeah. that became a lot more pronounced, like, in their sort of, you know, 2000s period where I'd say they kind of, like, entered their binaural phase. <laughs> around, probably around the same time as Pearl Jam, actually, actually, where, you know, things got a little more textural. Um, you know, the songs were a little less immediate, a little more atmospheric. Um, they could still, like, rock out when they wanted to, but there was definitely more of a an attention to Texture on those later records. Although I would say, what, what could be my favorite Tragically Hip song was on uh, the World Container record, um, which is a song in View, which to me kind of sounds like their response to the sort of arcade fire moment. <laughs> it came out in 2006, and it's just like this really great sort of Glockenspiel power pop song.
1: So that would you think that's, you would call that your favorite?
0: I guess it's the one I, I still, like, I hold closest now, just because all the other ones have been so, you know, they're like oxygen to me. <laughs> it's just, they've been so, you know, a part of my life that, that, you know, in view still sounds very fresh to me, and it's it's a really, yeah. it's it's And it's, a, it's sort of a mode that they didn't explore a lot of, just this sort of, you know, yeah, this kind of power pop mode.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean... Which, and, and I, I like that mode for them, too, although I have to say that I respond most to that sort of bombastic anthemic yeah. quality that they have, which was really coming into play, I think, on day for night. Like, Actually, one record that a lot of people recommended to me on, on Twitter when I started saying, like, I'm listening to the Tragically Hip and I'm you know, looking for entry points, a lot of people recommended the live record from 97, Live Between Us. And um, the version of Grace 2 from that record is... Probably better than the one on the record, and there's also a great version of "Nautical Disaster" on that live record, yeah. which is pretty amazing.
0: And that's that's just a really great snapshot of the band, like at their peak, and Gord, like in his element, where he's, you know, where he like it's kind of like where bands used to do guitar. Where bands, most bands, put a guitar solo, they put like a Gord solo, like where they just let him riff and like. Think like on New Orleans is sinking, he starts singing like bits of China Girl.
1: (laughs) Well, I was reading, I I was reading too that like when uh, that like nautical disaster came out of just him riffing on a live version of New Orleans is sinking, like that he Uh that he that he used to just sort of go off on these improvised stories in the middle of that song, and then they would sometimes turn into songs, and that that's how nautical disaster started. And there was, I guess, some other uh, tragically hip song that started out that way. But yeah, like on on the live record, you really get the sense of like, like, wow, this guy's like a live wire. Like he's ranting, you know, during it, but it's, it's really electrifying and it just makes me appreciate too. Like, man, the nineties were a glory period of like just nervous as shit lead singers. Like people who just, (laughs) you know, were like a wreck on stage, but it was totally riveting, you know, like just great front people, great, you know, great people out front. Which um, I think there's sort of a dearth of right now. It seems like people who are in bands, everyone plays an instrument now. They're, the sort of yeah. standalone singer um, isn't as common at this point. But like, I think the Tragically Hip is an example of a band. I think that they, you know, instru- the, the instrumentalists in that band are really great. But if Downey wasn't up front, you know, I, th- I mean, to me, what what their formula is is this anthemic rock music that, you know, it's it's really I mean the the music can be straightforward because he's such a crazy man out front and he's such right, a exactly. poetic because guy. And like And I and, kinda
0: see similar like a similar relationship in the national. Who right. don't exactly sound like the Tragic Hip per se. I mean they could probably cover some tragically hip songs and it wouldn't sound too weird. But you know Matt Berninger does you They know, could do
1: Moonlight in Vienna. They can yeah. do that song. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um he um you know he comes on like a very you know sort of stoic presence, but then by the end of the show he's like climbing up balcony uh, <laughs> climbing up the balcony, and like running into the crowd, so he kind of like it's sort of more of a slow burning version of Cordani that eventually like hits.
1: I said Moonlight in Vienna. By the way, it's springtime in Vienna. I screwed that up. I don't. I, I feel like Canadians, you know, like when they hear this, are going to be like hitting the, you know, they're going to be turning off the podcast after I screwed that up. I it have a song lot of pressure
0: channel. on me to like represent this properly. But I think, but I, I, think, I, 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 think have...
1: I think the National could cover Springtime in Vienna though, because that's kind of like an REME time- sounding yeah. song, um, or, um, or they could even do like a, or like
0: you know a lot of the ballots, I think would be in their wheelhouse, and you know, I feel like they have a similar dichotomy of the sort of like rootsy sort of refined rock sound, but then the sort of like, you know, taking time bomb of a frontman, right? And That's a great and, formula. And, and also the same kind of like poetic sort of lyricism works there. Um, I was going to say, the thing I really like about the Live Between Us record is like right off the top of the opening grace to Gore Downey gives a shout out to the Rio statics who are, you know, a much loved, yeah, veteran Canadian indie rock band up here who yeah, also didn't never really crossed over into the US, even though they were on Sire Records at one point in the in the nineties. Um but it's it's you know, here's the biggest band in Canada putting out, you know, a live album of them at the sort of peak of their powers and the first thing you hear is like, you know. Let's hear it for the real statics. Like our country is so much better for him, really right. for having them with us. So and you know, that that to me, sum, you know, sums up Gord Like he was always using his platform to, you know, shine a light on you know, younger bands or less popular bands.
1: I mean, so like you know, now that now that he's gone and it's been about a month. I mean, what's it? What's the mood? I mean, like are people uh, still processing this? Uh, you know in canada is this, i mean how big of an impact has this made
0: yeah, there's still a lot of a lot of covers <laughs> coming out and, um inside this weekend in toronto there's an annual concert called the dream serenade which is hosted by singer-songwriter hayden who uh, you might be familiar with oh yeah and uh who full disclosure is, is actually my second cousin but um, Oh, okay, he, so a little uh,
1: nepotism here, dropping his name, I yeah, see. Sorry.
0: But no, this, this, will, this will be relevant <laughs> to the discussion, I promise. Um, so he hosts these annual concerts that are a benefit for a local school that aids children with uh, developmental delays. Um, and, you know, so it's this all-star Canadian indie party that happens each year at Massey Hall. And last year, Gore Downey did a surprise appearance as the very first performer of the night. So like right at eight o'clock and, you know, I was, <laughs> I was having dinner and my mom was going to the show and I got a text from my mom, at like eight o five 5 PM saying, Oh down, he's on stage right now. <laughs> I was just like, oh. um, he did come out for the grand finale. So I did get to see him there. But so I imagine this weekend, uh, Sloan and Sam Roberts are playing the show and uh, I imagine there'll be a lot of Gord, Gord loved being expressed from the stage. Uh Um, last week, you know, Broken Social Scene opened for Arcade Fire at the Arcanda Center and they did a tribute to him. And, uh, yeah, I think people are still, you know, they're still absorbing his new record too. He put put out his final record a week after he passed. And it's an album called Introduce Yourself. And it's a 23 song double album that each song is written about a person in his life or a moment in his life. So it's these like autobiographical vignettes. And it's not, you know, it's not your sort of typical meditation on death, you know, like you know, like Leonard Cohen's last album. It's 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 a surprisingly like very playful, very celebratory kind of record. And there's a lot of a lot of gorge humor comes out on it as well. Like there's a song called Spoon, which is about him and a friend going to see Spoon. <laughs> and it's got, like, direct name drops and talking about deer, going to see Deer Hunter as the opening band. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really lovely record. And that was produced by Kevin Drew from Broken Social Scene. and So it's got this nice balance of, like, really raw lyricism but this, like, atmospheric, dreamlike quality to it.
1: Well, I feel like I should offer my condolences to the entire country of, of Canada for, for this loss. And and I, I do feel uh, like a dink here, not getting into the Tragically Hip until Gord Downey died. But at the same time, I feel like, and this applies to the listeners right here, if you've never listened to this band, check them out. They have a lot of great records. They have a deep discography. And better late than never, you know, they're, Gord Downey lives every time someone new discovers this band. So yeah. Check out this band. They're a great band. And Americans, come on, get our heads out of our asses. It's not just about our country. We should appreciate these great bands that are right in our backyard. Um, So let's not blow it. Better late than never. Let's get into the Tragically Hip. Let's wave the flag here in America. Um, Stuart, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you sharing some knowledge, being the representative Canadian uh, on the podcast to pay tribute to the hip.
0: I hope I did my country if not proud, then, uh, respectably. So, um, but thank you for having
1: me. Yeah. You were great. You are a great Canadian as far as I'm concerned. So. Bless you. <laughs> all right, man. We'll take, all right, take care. All right. Thank you. All right. There was a primer for all of you Americans out there on the hip. I uh, hope that uh, there's a spike on Spotify after this episode on streams of day for night and fully completely and Phantom Power, and Road Apples, and all the other great Tragically Hip records. Thank you so much for listening this week, guys. I just want to plug some of my work on Uproxx.com. Last week, I wrote a very in-depth appreciation of Automatic for the People. Also talked about the new box set that came out for that record. Of course, you'll remember recently we did a podcast episode with Brian Koppelman talking about the record. Um... So if you were into that podcast, I think you'll like this story. I, you know, I kind of dig in deep about the making of the record, the significance of the record, and and, and why it's, um, I think, one of the great records of, of the last 25 years. Um, I also wrote about a band called Gre- Greta Van Fleet, uh, a band that I've been hearing a lot about from people just in random conversation. People seem to be excited about this band. Uh, they're a bunch of really young kids from Michigan, and they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. I cannot emphasize enough how much these guys sound exactly like led zeppelin uh it's uncanny so if that's your thing or you're kind of intrigued by like why members of generation z you know 18 to 21 year olds why they would even care about led zeppelin i think you should check out that story as well it might might be interesting for you thanks again guys too you know I, i say this all the time but i mean it we would not have a show without your support thank you so much for talking about us on social media telling your friends about us and getting the name out there. It really makes it a pleasure to do this show knowing that we have such a great audience. So thank you for listening. Otherwise, guys, thank you so much. Listen to The Tragically Hip. Check out day for night. And uh, we'll see you again next week.